it's Zachary Tucci. I'm so popular. And today, in my continuing journey to blur the lines of reality between podcast and truth, uh, we are discussing the state of Oregon and its mysteries, along with two novels by Blake Nelson and two films by Gus Van Sant. I am joined by a really special guest. Uh, I've been waiting to do this episode since like June, so I'm really happy to have you here. Who are you? I am Blauergeist. Hello. Hello, Blauergeist. What are you doing? I am drinking an IPA, a Hazy Jack IPA, the the native elixir of Oregon, Portland specifically, and I am smoking a stogie indoors, as is my right as a man and a homeowner. Exactly. Um, I'm drinking a Sapporo, which is um, only remarkable because Sapporo is technically the sister city of Portland. Uh, but I have to ask, why do you follow me? I do. I, fo- I think I think we came together, obviously, through Jack and through the kind of perfume nationalist, fragrant kind of homo fascist scene that he's cultivated. And, of course, you were a contributor to an early revelation of Apocalypse Confidential. You wrote the short story Male Idol that was a kind of... Uh, you know, a kind of a pastiche of pink films, I believe is the term. And it was very well received. And so you have my eternal love for bringing the page views for that. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I am a big fan of your podcasting ventures yourself, uh, especially your appearances on TPN. But what I think is really special about your presence online is Apocalypse Confidential, which is just the coolest literary project And I I think there's a lot of people who have kind of a high aspirations for creating art out of this scene, um, you know, beyond podcasts and and what have you. But truly, in my mind, the only exemplary and absolutely successful iteration of any of them is Apocalypse Confidential. The writing is so well curated. It's really refreshing to see a, a literary project that has any merit at all, let alone stuff that I actually find compelling. And there's thank you very much. There's just so much wonderful fiction and great nonfiction from uh, just a variety of really fascinating people who put their hearts into what they do and uh, really exhibit perversion on, on such a great level. I love Dan Thrall's story as well, and having um having a Apocalypse Confidential be the first publication to to publish my story feels really fitting. I submitted that story, Male Idol, for a. Uh, I think like nine other journals and got rejected from all of them. And uh, one of them said it it read too much like porn. And then in the email you sent me accepting it, you said, I love how sleazy this is. So I knew the story had found the right home. (laughs) That's right. Their loss. That's right. Their loss. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about how Apocalypse Confidential started and uh, what your inspiration for bringing it to life was? Well, so the germ of the idea began when I was taking notes for the, you know, I feel like at this point it's a pretty permanent hiatus of Elroy boys. And I was taking notes for the episode, you know, my sort of like weird extrapolations and just sort of wanting a place to post them. And then that obviously spirals out, as things do, spiral out into a grander vision of 
posting originally it was going to be more like essays and stuff but i'm very pleased that it has become more of a fiction and poetry zone um the inspiration for the name and like it sort of functions as inspiration for the site in general comes from uh apocalypse culture the infamous uh essay collection that feral house did in like the late 80s right and then of course la confidential by james elroy yeah and, and I so mean, it's basically it's such a great confluence of those it's like a confluence of kind of sleazoid, pulpy, vaguely theory, occult kind of stuff. It's like it's like a mix of all of that stuff. No, it's it's so incredible, and I think anyone who is kind of actively engaged in the popular literary moment will find that mm, popular journals and magazines are pretty depressing for the kind of sexless stuff they put out and um when i was submitting my story i got like a few complimentary issues from some of the magazines and i was going through one of them i think it was like a granta or something and there was just the most awful like superhero fiction and all of like these immigrant memoirs and i mean I appreciate that people are still reading and, like, you know, trying to contribute with those kinds of things, but it just is so depressing to see so much stagnant staleness. And yet you open up to any story in Apocalypse Confidential and there is absolute, like, sleazoid, like, smoky, icky, wonderful and heartfelt perversion. And I think it's just such a great project. So thank you for putting your work into it. Thank you. Yeah, it's sort of like, in popular fiction, it's either the two, like, polarities are either, like, my Abuleta and her magical flying tortilla, or it's about, like, <laughs> or it's about, like, being vaguely unhappy in Connecticut. Oh, it's exactly that. Um, And I can also see that there's, like, you know, people around my age who are, like, trying to, like, do their own story. And, and this includes mine as well. But it's, like bad sex and cigarettes it's like that's like it so i love that there's a uh, so much more going on between the surface of the stories that you share in, in your in your journal so yeah once again thank you so much for everything you do i'm really happy to have you here today of course thank you so today we're talking about the mystery of oregon because uh we both have a an intrigue in the disgusting but i think um Moreover than that, we're both native Oregonians, and over the past few weeks, I've been kind of trying to unravel the border between my podcast and the reality of my lived life, and so I think it's really great timing that we finally arrive together here today to talk a little bit about Oregon, which is a state at the end of the world, I feel. Yes. So you were born and raised, right? Yes, I am. Okay, so I was actually born in Seattle, but I don't have any memories of it. I was uh, moved off to Oregon when I was two, but there is a quality to the state of Oregon that being one of the last states established in America feels both um, like a revelation and the birth of a new world and also the end of everything at once. It's sort of where... You know, to paraphrase what Joan Didion talked about California, it's sort of equally true for Oregon, where it's it's sort of like among these uh, 
you know, verdant rolling mountainsides and beaches and, you know, the dunes of Florence that inspired Dune by Frank Herbert and all of that. Like, you know, this is where we run out of continent. And yeah, there has always been a kind of, you know, haunted quality to it, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is the absolute limit of the American idea and the physical landmass itself, I've always felt um, that there really is quite like a liminal and disturbing quality about it that I also think is uh, also quite sweet. And this has been, you know, kind of depicted in various media in the Pacific Northwest and its idea with like the nihilism of like grunge music and like the ethereal mystery of Twin Peaks. But it's really a sensation that you only get if you've been in the collapsing state of Oregon as long as people like uh, we have. (laughs) And I feel like that liminality is especially prevalent in Portland. And the way that I always think about it is before there ever was a city of Portland, this sort of, that sort of area on the bank of the Willamette was known to uh, fur trappers and loggers as the clearing. And I feel like, even though this city has been built atop of it, it has been the clearing ever since, both in terms of a noun and a, you know, a verb where it is a continuous, continual state of transformation, gentrification, decay, development. And so it is eternally this liminal space where I guess the best way to put it is, um, I remember when I first moved back here from college in Eugene and I, you know, some of my friends were making these shirts that were saying, I hate, it was either, I hate the new Portland or I miss the old Portland, or maybe it was both. Um, And then I asked them, oh, how long have you, you know, oh, so you're Portlanders, you know, expecting them to be Portland natives. And they were like, oh, no, man, I've been in here. I've been here for like five years. And for a Portlander, that is a long time to be here for five years. But when you're like a native, it's like, well, five years is nothing. And so I feel like it's eternally a city that is going through this cycle of decay and development, basically. I think exactly the same thing. And It's really interesting as well because the image of Oregon that exists like in the American mind outside of the state itself is exactly the same thing. It's constantly like stuck in this like state of nostalgia for something that like kind of existed but kind of didn't, which was kind of the grungy riot girl like thrift store Portland that people imagine from the 90s. And that's ripped between the state that it's currently in, but the kind of distance between that idea and uh, whatever Portland is constantly transforming and toppling itself into over and over again. Like that middle ground is like actually where the state mindset seems to live. So people from Oregon are like kind of these individuals who are um, like born out of the stress between nostalgia and the contemporary moment, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, you can see it as like, because it is the frontier at the end of the world, there's this anxiety to continually maintain it as the frontier. 
because if it gets too settled, then it becomes stagnant and dies. But as long as you continue churning and toiling the soil of this frontier, it will always be the frontier. And you will, we will always be, you know, to borrow the term from the team, we will always be trailblazers, essentially. <laughs> That's exactly right. The frontier quality is, is really special as well, because um, the Oregon Trail and the journey of survival and hardship is back as early as like Lewis and Clark arriving in Oregon with Sacagawea. And then up to like the frontier days when people were beginning to settle in the country. Um that, like, essence of loneliness and survivability, like, really continues to last. And I think that's kind of where, like, the rainy depression image of places like Seattle and Portland comes from, is, like, this uh, worn-in, lonesome uh, state of uh, endless survival that comes from uh, the very establishment of the country. Absolutely. And, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I am related to William Clark of Lewis and Clark, on my boppa's side okay and work on my what's that <laughs> sorry i just said work <laughs> that's cool oh yeah and then on <laughs> my nana's side and these are both of my mom's parents on my nana's side um like the oldest ancestor is this dude named ramsey crooks who was like this fur trader and he was like john jacob astor's point man in like the pacific and like he uh like there was like some incident where he was caught by indians along with john day who obviously was the namesake for john day and john day river in port in uh oregon and they got caught by indians and like had to run through the forest naked so that's interesting and so i say all of this basically the point of it's like yeah this sort of the sense of Oregon as this, you know, like kind of lonesome pioneer liminal space is very much felt. No, I think so. And it iterates in a lot of strange ways, like kind of beyond the nostalgia I was thinking about. But there's like a sense of death, like always in Oregon. And I think the first time I ever really truly felt it was when my uh, next door neighbor who had a team of German shepherds, like these really frightening dogs. Um, one day when my mom and I were on the way home from uh, from elementary school, there was a bunch of cop cars pulled outside and we uh, later discovered that they had arrested the, um, the man who lived there with his daughter for uh, running a, a child pornography circuit in New York. And then three weeks later, we caught cop cars there again and it's because uh, the daughter had killed herself in the shed um, and her body had been rotting in the shed for three weeks. So I've always that was kind of the first moment that like kicked me into an awareness that the people who reside in Oregon are kind of these uh, lonesome pioneers on the verge of death. There is always, you know, we've always been pioneering in that kind of true crime grizzliness like within our lifetimes you had like ward weaver and like and i still remember the names ashley pond and miranda gaddis where he like stuffed them in like a cement block or something and then you had like kip kingle you know like during like the whole like school shooting scare of like the early 2000s which we'll get to later with elephant um 
And then you have obviously like incidents before our lifetimes, like involving like crazy skinhead shit. And then there was like some incident where like this like teenage girl drowned some kid she was babysitting. And so, yeah, like Oregon and Portland have always had this like horrifying kind of uh, like verging on insanity going on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I feel like when you put humanity on its very extremes and the last limits of its possible expansion, of course, like you begin to see these uh, major cracks popping up. And even like when I was in high school, like constant like sex scandals and like meth death and uh, this constant like kind of like static tone of like people just suddenly expiring violently, like three of the kids from my middle school grade killed themselves uh, in the last like five years. And my principal in high school, like uh, statutory raped for the girls, like there's just always with these people at like the very limits of the American idea, like you just see them beginning to slip up and fall in these really dramatic ways. Absolutely. So much death. <laughs> yeah, it's all death, decay, and like it's just like a weird sense of rot that's ongoing because the rot is required as a sacrifice for the rebuilding and rejuvenating. And you kind of see that with like the whole obsession with like, you know, upcycled fashion and like vintage wear and like restored hardwood you know like kind of like hipster ace hotel shit where it's like even like the fashion and like interior design is sort of rested on a bedrock of you know what is a certain you know it's a bit of a stretch maybe but it is a kind of death like you're wearing the clothes that was were discarded by someone else you know no, that's totally true. Like, the aesthetic ideas that, like, thrive in Oregon are all, like, innately touched with death. And even, like, in its most superficial and corny iterations, which, like, you mentioned the Ace Hotel. Like, I can definitely imagine in there it's, like, a a teal blue and, like, gold, like, kind of Etsy um, silhouette of, like, deer antlers or something. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's the ex- deer antlers. Yeah, exactly. And it's, like... And- it's an image of death. Yeah. And it's like, and I mean, maybe even more pronounced than uh, Ace Hotel, although that has some resonances too. Um, but like, you know, the McMinimums franchise oh my is God. entirely about taking these old spaces that once had some utility, like the Kennedy School or whatever, and just repurposing them as essentially fun houses for like yuppies and hipsters which i mean i'm fine with because i'm both of those but there is still something a bit maybe garish about taking a place that was meant to be for education and turning it into a place to get drunk you know (laughs) yeah it's like so haunted yeah and especially with kennedy school because that kennedy school was close within walking distance from where when i lived like in Northeast Portland when I was like a little, little kid. And I distinctly remember walking around like the halls, you know, with my parents and stuff, walking around like the hallways 
and like they would have like the doors open to the classrooms and all that stuff and like in one of the classrooms was a painting of the hallway outside with the window and looking in in this painting of that hallway outside just outside the the room was a ghost of like some schoolgirl. And that was that was like insanely macabre to see that as like what like a fucking like nine year old kid that like it's sort of playfully suggesting it's like oh yeah this is a place for fun but don't forget that it is haunted. Yeah, no, for real. Um, I that's so well put. I never thought about McMinnivans in that way before. But there's even beyond that. There's so many repurposed like quote spaces unquote, like, especially in Portland where it's like here's this old high school, we're going to turn it into a concert venue, or, like, here's, like, this old apartment building, and we're going to turn it into an art gallery and coffee shop. And there is something, like, not just, like, haunted, but, like, kind of, you know, uncomfortable and weird about, like, walking through, like, these recently dead memories. Because, like, if you go to somewhere like New York, um, if we're talking about America, or, like, the South, it's, like, Obviously, there's, like, so much death that happened there that they just built on top of. But because, like, Oregon is, like, what? Like, 150 years old or something like that? Because it's so new, it's, like, the death happened recently. It's, like, especially fresh in the air. Yeah, it's, like, within the chain of recent memory. Like, it not might not be a living memory, but it's, like, maybe your grandparent told you and their grandparent told you. And so it's, like, only a couple people removed from like recent history. And I felt this when reading girl and user where it's like, they were talking about all these clubs and restaurants and venues and stuff that like I knew were real, but like they didn't ring any bells for me because like I looked them up and it's like, you know, I think one of the places both of the books mention is the Monte Carlo. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I look it up and it was like, closed in 2008 so like just before my time of like wandering around portland you know in a real sense and so like basically you know like the way i would put it is like portlandia has like you know has like kind of injected the sub in the consciousness of like well the dream of the 90s is still alive in portland but that couldn't be further from the truth or maybe it is true, but it's the dream of the 90s is what killed the reality of the 90s. Yes, that's exactly true. And I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get to the books, but both of those were like published in the 90s. So there's like a self-reflexive element there. But I'm glad you brought up Portlandia because uh, the, the myth of Oregon that exists in Portlandia is both like very true and like very not true at all. And I I think that it's so fascinating that this show kind of, like, imagined, like, Portland as, like, this, like, quirky, ultra-woke, like, feminist, like, nightmare in some way, because that's very true in a lot of aspects, but at the same time, it also, like, misses, like, the fundamental solitude and death of the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm sort of a paranoid person, and so I'm, like, 100% convinced that they got some kind of funding from, like, you know, like the main city, like think tank or something like that. Like, what is it? It's like the city club of Portland, which by the way, the one of the presidents of in the seventies was the McMinimums brothers father. 
And so you have that connection right there. Um, and so I'm convinced that, because like, what was that? When did that show come out? It was like 20, 2011. So that yeah. was kind yeah. of the start of, you know, obviously the literal start of the 2010s, but also like a kind of metaphysical start of that kind of neoliberalism. And so I am convinced that like it, all of that kind of quirky, Etsy, cutesy, whimsical shit was like deliberately pushed as a way to kill old Portland. Cause like what a lot of people who are, you know, Portland natives, which at this point, Portland natives is someone who's been here for five years, I guess. Um, like this used to be like a hardcore rough and tumble town. Like, it was, like, during, like, the post-war period in the 40s and 50s, it was one of the most dangerous port cities in the world. And obviously, you had, in the 1800s, you had, like, the Shanghaiing and, like, the Shanghai tunnels and shit. And so, like, it had a reputation as, like, this kind of scuzzy, rainy shithole for criminals. And I'm not, like, you know, I'm not an idiot where I'm like oh we just got to go back to back then because it was so much better because obviously you know it was bad times but like what we have right now especially in light of the recent years is the combination of the kind of put a bird on it you know (laughs) hyper gentrification with the scuzzy shithole criminal elements Oh my god, it, that you couldn't have said it I couldn't have said it better myself. Like the put a bird on it nightmare of like trying to like push like Portland into the fantasy of twee liberalism is so repulsive. Yeah. And I recall even from like a very young age, like when I went to Portland to go like see a musical with my mom or something, I always had an impression of it as like a very dark, like scuzzy and like dangerous place to be in. And yeah. When I started going back in, in college, like, on trips with my friends and stuff, and I went to, like, um, like the Owl and, like, some of those bars and what have you, I was like, what is this? Like, this is, it's, it's like a proliferation of all of, like, the dirtiness of Portland, which is, like, famous for previously having the highest per capita of strip clubs, like, in the world. And it's a proliferation of those dirty instincts, which I think is a good ritual for these pioneers that continue to reside there and it's just sinking it into uh these comic like avatars of death like the put a bird on it and like the fake antlers and stuff it's like all indicative of like rot and decay and death but it's just done in the most like child like padding way yeah and uh in going back to the ace hotel to me the resonance is is i would I would sort of mark the death of Portland as like a real city and not just a playground of this twee liberalism as 2007, because 2007 is when that Ace Hotel was established, which by the way, was a former like flop house for like, you know, drifters and drug addicts and stuff, you know, maybe the people who made the real old Portland, um, but then also 2007 was when uh, Terry Coulier uh, or Coulier Courier or whatever of Music Millennium, um, uh, he trademarked uh, Keep Portland Weird. Um, and like Keep Portland Weird has always been a kind of 
false slogan for the city because it's sort of well one it's just one it's just stupid to trademark something like that but then also just the notion of keeping portland weird is like just inherently bizarre and reactionary because if you're keeping something that way as opposed to letting it naturally you know flourish how it will it becomes less of like a forest and more of like a potted garden of quirkiness yeah that's beautifully said like the idea of keep portland weird like an act of um maintaining is innately opposed to the idea of weirdness or something strange or something uncomfortable and I mean, I've definitely had, like, a lot of experiences in Portland that are, quote, weird, unquote, like, uncomfortable. Like, um, when this, like, tranny, like, took us from, like, the gay club and I, like, didn't, I thought she was a drag queen and did not realize she was merely a tranny. And she's like, I'm gonna take you girls somewhere fun. And then she, like, took us to the most, like, revolting gay strip club you could possibly imagine. Like, that I that stuff is wonderful and I, I'm glad it can still happen. But if, like, the idea is to keep that happening and to maintain it and garden it then you're only going to abstract it into the nightmare to put a bird on it. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, what is the put a bird on it anyway? It's, what is it? It's a taxidermy bird. So there's that death theme. <laughs> there it is. And, like, we were talking a little bit earlier with, like, the cascades of the landscape because the sense of, like, green, rotting, mold, nature is so prevalent even like in portland but especially where i was growing up that it's like you really are constantly surrounded by like the quick overturn of like life and nature like seeing like deer corpses everywhere like blood on the highway every day these like trees and plants that just like die and like keep like rebirthing and like permanent sexual eminence it's like i just uh it's it's uh something you can't garden like you said it's something that you can't you know, maintain and try to plan out. You have to, like, surrender to this, like, frightening, like, natural spirit of the country. I am the girl you know can't look you in the eye. I am the girl you know so sick I cannot try. I am the one you want can't look you Nelson is a Portland-based YA author, and I first came across him in middle school at the public library when I read Paranoid Park, but I went on to devour both a lot of his uh, young adult fiction and some of his uh, more mature material, and in thinking about my imagination of Oregon and Portland and the significance it has in my life, I feel like there are few authors who have had uh, his power in representing it so 
truthfully. Among him, I would say Chuck Palahniuk and Ken Kesey with stuff like um, Sometimes a Great Notion are some of the only few authors who have really captured Oregon in a way I find compelling. Um, So today we're talking about his two novels, Girl and User, and Blauer, I'm very curious to hear about what you thought of these two tomes. Girl is interesting. Um, It's not really within my bailiwick of sort of preferred pulp crime sort of novels, but I came to appreciate it, especially because I don't know, I don't know what Blake Nelson's background is, like if he's a gay man or not, but he has a what I feel like is a very keen and authentic ear of like what it is like to be a woman. Like it felt very real to me. And I feel like it was a sort of appropriate mirror of Portland in general, because, you know, all cities are women. And so it felt like the best way to kind of appreciate the city of Portland is through the voice and perspective of this girl who was growing up and like becoming a kind of, you know, psychotic, semi-feral woman. Yes, I completely agree. Um, Girl is a a first-person novel written by this man, and I believe he's straight, um, as far as I know anyway, but, and it's uh, just like about 300 pages of uh, first-person writing about absolutely nothing that happens at all in Portland as this uh, girl proceeds through her life, Andrea Marr, and I was so spellbound by the frankness and the really brutal emotional honesty because this book is written in a way that is uh has no flourishes the sentences are like bullets pounding into you he writes like sentences with no commas ever and it's uh, always and then and this and this and things happen so quickly and are written about with uh, such frankness that it feels uh really like harsh to read it was written it was written the way that like a woman will tell you a story where it's like and then and then and then and then and then and it like and i was thinking this and then it ends with like a kind of anti-climax where it's like and then i got taco time and that's it and it's like so what so what what was going on there but it felt very true yeah i feel the exact same way um there is so many like obnoxious little conventions about this book where they always end up going to scamps for frozen yogurt like every like two pages yeah it's always frozen yogurt it's always uh taco time it's always you know going to like the same like two or three clubs um yeah it's like it's simultaneously feels expansive because they're going all over the place but then when you like look back you're like realize well shit they're really only going to like the same like four or five places yeah and it's like so boring like i and i I really love that quality of it because the extremely bored uninterested voice that she describes like the entire happenings of her life with um it suggests like a, a greater like sublimity and grandness about what's actually happening to this girl than, like, the actual uh, way that she presents it. And the matter-of-factness and blandness of it just makes it so extremely human to me. 
that. That reminded me a lot of in that sort of blank, like expansive blandness. It reminded me a lot of Less Than Zero. Yeah, I thought the same thing as well. This is like very Brett Easton Ellis adjacent. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting because it's like you realize that it's like this girl is going through all this sturm and drang and strife and angst and ennui, and then it's like well, shit, girl, you're just going through normal high school, like, kind of post-puberty adolescent life. But then what you kind of realize from that is that, like, the fact that everybody goes through that doesn't make it any less interesting or traumatic. And actually, it makes it more so because of the fact that it's like we all go through that agony in some form or fashion. And so we all have this like weird trauma in our lives that feels very, inter- it's like, it brings us all closer in a way because we're all in that human condition of being once a teenager. Yeah, totally. The way that it's presented with like that just matter of fact, like point, 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 like writing makes it so that when you kind of like are, wondering like what's like the point of this like everyone goes through this and then by like the end of the novel you realize oh yeah like everyone goes through this and it is so trite and boring but because of like the extreme amount of boredom and like similarity and like emptiness of these events you realize that like this is what like everybody goes through and I find it, like, especially impactful, like, when she, like, works at a summer camp for, like, one summer in between her sophomore and junior year and, like, loses her virginity. And there's, yeah, like, that one... that part was very good. Oh, I thought so, too. Because there's, like, what this was one... It? it was, like, Harper's Ferry or something something Ferry or something like it's that. It's exactly Harper's that. Langdon. Harper's Ferry. Which, what, a, like, a fucking Oregon name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, like, she goes up to Washington to, like, go to the summer camp and she's just like laying around in her bunk and she like says she's like but then I was like looking at a magazine and then it made me kind of lonely which made me horny which made me depressed period and it's like so perfect and then there's a line break and then it's the next section about whatever and like literally whatever because she does all like the performative stupid things that like teenagers do which is like emotionally having a cigarette at a bus stop when like you don't even know how to smoke a cigarette or like having like two beers going to a house party and it's done in like such a performative way that you see in how she presents it that you kind of like feel even more empathy for her because you see her trying so hard yeah and it's like going to a house party passing out then some guy like rubbing his dick on her face or something and and her reaction is like that was gross or something like that and it's not like this huge over the top me too kind of thing it's just like uh great boys right because the i think in the 90s at least like the way that people used to navigate like burgeoning sexuality was like of course like these hideous embarrassing like penis incidents would just like happen um i had a kid who jerked off in like my middle school class all the time i think that's like not an uncommon experience but like that's been completely washed out from any depiction that's like trying to speak to young people and so when this guy like jerks off i think she describes it he's like he's rubbing his pinkness and then like j- like comes on her arm and her leg and yeah, then like pretends to sleep on the floor and like slowly blows his like or, like uh pulls his pants up i was like this is perfect this is real 
absolutely. She also becomes like obsessed with the. This is kind of like the big entrance into like why this might be significant towards like Portland, but she becomes like really infatuated with like the music scene and some of its members, Todd yeah, Sparrow. Todd Sparrow, yeah. <laughs> and this is like a nostalgic image of like the '90s, like do-it-yourself, like uh, girl band kind of thing, but. There is something really charming to me about it, and I can't, like, quite put my finger on why. Yeah, it's a kind of... Yeah, I don't know. It's like they're just doing it to play music and not in this kind of, like, you know, post-2010s liberal, like, these are girls who are rocking out kind of thing. It's just girls who like music kind of thing. There's, like, a purity to it. There is a purity to it. And especially without the presence of smartphones and Instagram influence everywhere, you definitely feel like a more awkward and earnest drive about these people than the kind of put upon like show that people do when they make any artistic product now. Like it all has to be some process that can be literalized into images or into tweets or whatever. And so these girls who are rocking out. It's like very convincing to me. Yeah. It's interesting to compare this to the show Euphoria, which I haven't actually seen, but like obviously you see, you know, people having their takes and like screen caps and stuff like that on the TL and elsewhere and stuff like that. And that show is like so fraught with technology and all that stuff that feels dirtier in a way like once you have like all these extra screens involved and it's like it becomes dirty like a sort of smudged up screen but when it's this purity of like having to go to the phone connected to the wall and like call the house and like ask for your friend it is like both more innocent but also stranger in a way i guess yeah no i think that in order to authentically depict, like, the deathly spirit of Oregon, which I believe this novel does really well, um, you have to kind of be, like, removed from that technological interface because it's too expansive and leaves you too open to the rest of the world, whereas, like, without that entryway, you were totally trapped in, in the spirit here. And all of these characters, like, even outside of Andrea, like, all of her friends, like, the kind of more popular girl Darcy and her... Uh, more edgy friend Sybil like every single voice in this novel like does feel like they've been locked in the death chamber of Oregon and um, seeing them like clash against each other and like try to like figure things out in this like kind of uh, passe Oregon high school spirit just uh, it really warms my heart honestly absolutely and it's like Portland has always sort of struck me as an analog city versus digital. And that means that, like, you have to go to places to meet your friends. Like, you can't just be online and, like, talk to your friends like that. You actually have to go places. And I feel like that's obviously, and maybe that's what the dream of the 90s is that's still somewhat alive here, is the sensation that, like, you have to go places. That was, yeah. that was a bit of a circular thing. But, no, yeah. no, I don't think it's circular at all. I mean, like, to actually have to, like, 
leave your house and interact with someone. I mean, that's the only locality where, like, the Oregon we established together makes any kind of sense. Because if you're able to tap into anyone at any time, then there's uh, no meaning to the physical realm that you inhabit. Yeah. And I think this becomes even more true in uh, his later novel, which is for adults, called uh, User, about a um, young man named Mitch Smith who uh, just goes to clubs, works a shitty job, um, drinks a lot, smokes cigarettes, and then the thrust of the novel is that he meets a, a nice girl and has to kind of maneuver his uh, his apathetic worldview around that. And in the exact same way that Girl is a book where nothing happens, nothing happens here either, and it's just uh, him endlessly going to different events, going to work, doing some drugs, having a drink, and um, that's basically the entirety of the book. Absolutely. And it's like the whole shitty job thing is very relatable because during my more intensive club-going days, or rather club-going nights, is like you would like meet these people who were like, insanely charismatic and like you know like they were like the top fuck boys at the club like they were pulling all kinds of bitches and being badass and very cool but then you like talk to them and they're like oh yeah i work at a gas station and (laughs) and it's just like the sense that like everything is you know it's an escape it's going back to what we were talking about like the frontier at the end of the world is that like the frontier here, like psycho psychogeography wise, is once that like five o'clock bell rings, you gotta like go out and like be someone else at these places. Absolutely. Like the utter boredom and I keep saying boredom in this episode, but it's difficult to find like a better word to describe like the meaninglessness and like repetitive cycles that we have to go through every day like in the world and to see this like charismatic like club boy uh to see like the actual interiority of his uh very like bleak and bland kind of lifestyle is um like both like upsetting and also kind of inspiring and meaningful at the same time because it's like through your through like your enacting of just living your life that is meaning enough that is so true that couldn't have been said any better like i think that's kind of the whole point of like blake nelson and his writing is like the actual performance and conduct of your life is enough to you know constitute art and become something more meaningful and beautiful in the long run of things than just merely doing the trite actions that you find so meaningless in your day-to-day life but like when it's like viewed as a collective experience it it becomes you know what it's all for yeah because it's like obviously you have people who like have like bigger aspirations like i don't know they want to become like big journalists or professors or like you know volunteer for politicians and become politicians or whatever but like they have no life to what they're doing. Whereas the, you know, guy who works at like a dead end job at a gas station and then spends all his money at a club 
you know, sure, he might be, you know, what is that? A, you can call them a deadbeat or whatever, but that's a person who's actually living. Yeah, like, to trespass away from success and to deny, like, I mean, you were a J major at U of O. Like, I know, basically, like, all of my friends who did that program are, like, working, like, big jobs in New York and stuff now. And I can't say with confidence that all of them are, like, truly alive and are, like, really thrust against, like, the backbone of reality. They seem to be, like, floating meaninglessly in, in the world. But then you look at someone like Mitch Smith, the, the protagonist of this novel, as he just goes about these uh, club events doing, you know, basically nothing and just uh, endlessly screwing girls and having feelings about it. That kind of living is just so much more beautiful and, and impactful than living your life in the shallow simulacrum of a careerist reality. Yeah, living in like an entirely Ikea-furnished, DoorDash apartment kind of thing versus the Mitch Smith mode of living which is closer, you know, to get grandiose about it, which is closer to, like, the bohemian decadent poets of, like, the, you know, late 1800s Paris or whatever. There is a continuity to that lifestyle that has stretched on for centuries. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, like, the club lifestyle is an absolute art form. Like, the... I mean, I I talked about this endlessly in my last episode, but, like, to conspire with a whole horde of people that you do not know and like collectively create a temporal experience together like that is totally something that's worthy of art to me even if it's like fleeting and uh then only lives on in your memory thereafter but mish smith and his uh the the novel kind of frowns upon him even though i mean it's in third person and it's very close to him but i mean it kind of uh questions his motivations nonetheless like you can't stop thinking that like he's kind of right in this uh boring quest he's going on yeah and i mean you know to quest is the name of the one of the clubs that he goes to a lot That's and right. was a and was a poppin club like i never went to it but i think i don't know if it's still open or maybe it closed but i know people who would go there and like this sort of the idea of club going and nightlife as a form of life kind of comes into tension with this general death hauntedness of Portland and Oregon that we're talking about because especially in Portland, it feels like clubs open and close like every fucking month, every fucking weekend. And like, you know, there's there could be a club that was like that was like your place you know your church you know if you want to get grandiose about it but then it like either closes down or like reformats into a different type of club and that whole sort of sense of belonging is completely uh evaporated no that's precisely true like the club-going experience, and I think what makes Blake Nelson kind of critical about the Mitch Smith character is that innate spirit of death in Oregon. Like, he understands that every moment that we have is uh, doomed to uh, collapse into nothingness at the end of it. So he is able to kind of infect his writing, both in Girl and here in User, with that 
poignant sense of death, especially as it like pertains to these constant closing clubs and the staff that are endlessly being fired and rehired and all of this. And it becomes most true at the very end of the novel when after his really meaningless tryst with this uh, girl, Amy, that he's been going on and off with the whole novel, they're sitting in the back of the car together and uh, he writes... Then he sees the headlights from the right. It's a large sedan. It's moving at the exact wrong speed from the exact wrong distance. Beth screams. Amy burrows her head into Mitch's side. Mitch Mitch sucks in his breath. But then there's another sound. It's Stuart, letting off the gas and slamming it down again. The Dodge Charger lifts higher, revs harder, explodes forward. Mitch's head jerks back. The car interior fills with light all around him. There's a shrieking of horns of tires, and then they're through the intersection. They're alone in the fog. They're alive. And I just find it incredible that after all of uh, this kind of uh, cardboard reality and, and the sublimity that you can kind of extract from it, like, it's all put into question for just one paragraph, and it kind of makes the whole book, like, click together for me. Percent. Um, maybe it's tangential to what you're saying, but I feel like it relates to the club stuff is it reminds me a lot of uh, the book Voluptuous Panic, which is like about like the sort of like erotic world. It's the subtitle is The Erotic World of Weimar Berlin. And I've always felt that Portland was the closest thing that we have today to Berlin during the Weimar era, where it is that nihilism... And that kind of where the nihilism and the death drive and the life drive and the sex drive all sort of like collide together at the nightclub. And, you know, just to keep, you know, rambling on that sort of ending there. It's not that they had a brush with death. It's that they had a brush with life. Wow. That's so beautiful. It's like, they became more aware of of their lives and it became all the more shining and perfect because of it. Oh, the black-haired stranger rode into town It dawned the world tied down, down he rode a tall black stallion, four, fourteen and high. That she gave me a week. He rode up to the old house. Lighting, lighting, and saying he's in the back of the you better run, Sam. You better run. He's got 21 on his gun. There's a time, a time to stand. I can't beat him. I'll die like a man.
I was first introduced to by means of his film Paranoid Park in terms of an adaption of uh, the Blake Nelson novel Paranoid Park. And after watching that movie and, and seeing his artistry when I was in high school, I immediately became fascinated with his visual language and the kind of bland and quiet presentation of reality that he's fond of. And uh, my own private Idaho is really lovely as well, but today we're going to be talking about Paranoid Park and Elephant. And what did you think about these two movies, Blower? I love them, um, especially Elephant. Um, Paranoid Park was very cool. It had like a very, both of these movies had like a very sparse, almost, I don't know, Dog Me 95 mm-hmm. kind of like lo-fi sensibility. Paranoid Park had some resonances going back to like our earlier conversation because it came out in 2007, which is the year that I say Portland died. And so it was like, the kind of like depiction of the last gasp of like scuzzy Portland before, you know, the birds came on it or whatever. Um, An elephant was an insanely brutal, horrifying movie. I completely understand why it won the Palm d'Or because it is relentless and just the knowledge that like these because you you watch it knowing that it's about a school shooting but you don't really know when until it happens and so you watch it and you see these characters you know live out the first half of the day which is like the last day of their lives and then it kind of proceeds in like a circular faction circular fashion i mean which is even more horrifying because it gives this sense that like life and death are just on this loop, which again, going back to what we've said before, is the essence of the nature of Portland, which is life and death on a loop. Yes, absolutely. Like the thing that ties these two movies to the Blake Nelson novels, despite the fact that uh, one of them is a Blake Nelson adaptation, is that these books are set in Portland in a way that isn't just, like, superficial or, like, in the Portlandia or, like, kind of a Hulu TV series thing. These are books, like, yeah. These are books are set in Portland, like, in the way that they are obsessed with death in this, like, cold, static way. Um, And they present it in a nonlinear fashion, so you get the feeling it's both never and always happening. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'm trying to think of some things to follow. But yeah, <laughs> so I was just drinking my beer there. <laughs> so I was like, uh, um, yeah, Paranoid Park. Yeah, that movie was fascinating because just like it feel in the same way as User and um, Girl do. Like it just feels like nothing happens, but like in the course of nothing happening, like, I'm always struck by, I was struck by when he was talking to that cop in that first scene, and, like, he's going over his, like, subway order. And, like, that feels more, somehow that feels more authentically Portland than if he talked about going to some quirky, like, food pod. No, no totally. Real, like, no, real Portlanders, they go to the subway that's just off the bus stop before they have to go down Belmont or whatever. 
real Portlanders aren't like, oh, I'm going to go to this food pod and then go to this gastropod. You know, we hit, you know, the usual like chains that everyone else does. Absolutely. So that felt very real to me. No, I, it felt really real to me too. And um, yeah, in terms of Paranoid Park, this is a film about a uh, high school skater who um, attends the eponymous Paranoid Park Skateboard Park. And uh, getting involved there, he decides to take a uh, he decides to jump on a on a train with uh, one of the burnouts there. And when a security guard catches them, he accidentally kills him with his skateboard. And the film is a pretty contemplative and slow look at his life as uh, he is uh, swallowing what he's done. And it's presented in the most cold and static and matter-of-fact presentation while um, these actors who are all in their teenagers are, like, doing, like, the Twin Peaks, like, failure to actually be able to act. And when they're talking about things, like you said, like their subway order or what they were doing the last night or, like, they're talking in their car about what a fag board is or not, these are, like, real glistening human beings. Mm -hmm. It felt like a good artifact of the times because, like, he did his casting call on MySpace. So it had like, it has like this fun kind of mid 2000s pre like Facebook swallowing up everything vibe to it. Absolutely. MySpace is definitely like the ghost hovering over this whole thing. Like the protagonist, his girlfriend, Jessica, has like MySpace eyeliner on and like talks like in like a top 10 MySpace way the whole fucking time era of like the whole drama about like who is in your top eight and like what the specific like slots in your top eight meant where it was like always like your best friend from childhood is in your number one spot your girlfriend at the time is in the number two spot and then you're like a couple of friends from your current school are in the three four etc spot and then it was all this you know the drama about like Oh, what song am I going to put on my MySpace profile? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. And the whole texture of that kind of social organizing, like, rings really true in the way that these, like, teenage characters interact with each other. And, of course, like, the death uh, and the death of the security guard is, like, the central nucleus. But what I actually like the most about this is, like, the really boring and uninteresting way that these people talk to each other and the actors all being unprofessional and like not very good at acting like makes it feel very uncanny um there's a scene when like jessica is talking to her boyfriend the protagonist i I can't remember his name right now why is that happening to me he's just so like there it's i don't remember it either but yeah he's just kind of a cipher i guess yeah he's a cipher and when she's like berating him and she's like did you have fun with your friend and he says oh no not really and then she says whatever shut up um anyway do you want to walk me to class (laughs) i love it yeah and uh there's a lot of like i i think that the juxtaposition between the death and his uh guilt over the murder with like the stupid you know high school stuff that he's going through is all really beautiful, and my favorite out of all of it is when uh, he has the dispassionate, uninterested sex with her at the pool party. Mm-hmm. 
oh my god, it's like so like boring and sad to see these like two people like having like the most like new like these two 16 year olds having the most neutral sex you've ever seen i could not believe it yeah it's fucking like basic and like the death is so like i like am still not sure it's like was that like a dream sequence or not because it's like the body gets cut in half and then the upper half like is crawling to him and it's it's just like in the middle of this extremely lo-fi minimalist like proto mumblecore movie this like insanely like grand gujonel moment absolutely like the death is shocking because like the security guard falls in front of a train after he gets hit with a skateboard and his body is cut in two and there's like a 2 minute sequence of him like slowly crawling forward towards the protagonist with like his intestines exposed it's insane but in like i feel like that's true to the experience of the death haunted oregonian where it's like a kind of like blase and we tinged life but then you hear these like sort of like splashes of red where it's like christian longo drowning his whole family or you know, Kip Kingle, like, fucking, like, stuffing firecrackers, like, up, like, a fucking, like, cat's asshole and, like, killing his parents and shit like that. Like, it's this sort of canvas of gray and, like, sort of, like, dark green, but then there are these, like, splashes of red. That is a beautiful, like, portraiture of Oregon because the... Death that we've been talking about this entire time in Oregon being the country of death, it's like, it happens in such a uniform way that, like, you feel, like, in the same emotional palette as you do when, like, you're feeling a little bit down about the rain that, like, never ends. It's like, the endless rain and the endless death, like, have, like, the same kind of percussion to them, but then every now and again, something out of all of it just, like, strikes you with that bright flash of red and this movie doing that ultra gore intestine sequence with the crawling security guard is just so perfect yeah and it's like maybe it's because it's on my brain because i i watched one of his movies for the agitator podcast but it like it felt like a moment out of like a takashi Miike movie in the middle of this gus van sant movie oh it totally does like i think that because um Gus Van Sant is, you know, a homosexual, like, perverted astie that, like, in the same way that, like, Japanese uh, art directors are, like, he uh, sees, like, a lot of beauty and mundanity, like Nikkei does as well, but he also, like, delights and elates in the extreme pop of blood. And, like, thinking about, uh, like, Ike the Killer, when uh, there's, like, the slicing with, like, those, like, shoe blades and stuff on people's arms. And, like, the way that people get cut apart in that movie is uh, this same kind of rainy blandness as Oregon. And I do think that because Van Sant is a homosexual, like, he's able to realize it more truly than a, a female or straight male director probably could find Oregon. It's true. And you definitely... And it's interesting because you have like the reverse of that or not the reverse but like the opposite of that in elephant where the violence is is demonstrated very matter-of-factly but like in an even more like it's 
I think I saw like a quote about it that it was like, this is one of the most violent movies that I've ever seen, but it's not because of like the amount of like violent, like the bloodshed or like gunplay or whatever, but it is just violence to a complete existence, I guess. Yeah. So let's talk about Elephant because when I think about school shootings, um, Earlier in season two, I discussed uh, the Columbine shootings and 9-11 is like pieces of art. And when it comes to depictions of mass violence, I find that films can be pretty ineffectual at accomplishing it. But because Gus Van Sant is a homosexual trained on the most static and flat kind of imagery that you could possibly imagine, the human reality bursts out of this movie and the Oregonian spirit of the constant threat of death and its meaninglessness, like, becomes just so utterly shocking and profound in this movie that is completely unviolent until its last 12 minutes. Absolutely. And I, wa- I want to ask you something. When you were going to high school in Sisters, Oregon, did you have this constant in high school and maybe grade school too, did you have this constant like existential fear of a school shooting happening? Because I know I a hundred percent did. I absolutely did as well. I, I I think that we didn't do trainings. We didn't do like uh, school shooting trainings or anything until I was in college and we did some then, but I was constantly living in the memory of Columbine as I think everyone was. And that Columbine happened in kind of the most, like, you know, minute, uninteresting, kind of regular places made, like, my hometown seem, like, precisely the place it could happen. And especially since I went to a small school, it's like, you see everybody's emotional dramas unfolding constantly in real time in very close proximity. So the idea of one of them tipping over and resulting in a school shooting, like, never seemed very alien. And so I do remember, like, walking through the halls of my high school, like looking at doors and thinking about what if someone popped out of one of these with a gun right now? Same. Absolutely. Yeah. We had, we had like the sort of, we never called them like school shooting drills, but we were always, they were always just like, you know, like stranger on the premises drills. And they, yeah, they almost feels like they were designed to just like fucking terrify us. But yeah, there is always just the sense of constant, like, looming doom. And, like, I don't know exactly, maybe it just ended when I graduated and went to college. But, like, after a certain point, it, like, stopped being a huge, like, constant threat. But I'm not sure when that was. Yeah, I don't think I felt too much of it until recently because there's been, like, um, in 2021, there were, like, maybe, like, six or seven, like, knifing incidents on trains in Japan. And uh, one of them happened at one of the stations I transfer at every morning on my way to work. So I, I have been thinking about that kind of stuff more recently. But the kind of, like, monotony and blandness of contemplating the fact that at any moment, someone could just commit mass violence against you is um, really perfectly realized in Elephant because 
this movie came out kind of before like the school shooting like scare and frenzy had really like kicked into full gear but he realizes that the actual terror of this thing happening is not the actual incident but the mundanity that leads to it yeah exactly it's sort of like this this terror and the sadness especially of like you don't even realize that that is your last day on earth and you spend your last day on earth like what like doing fucking math homework or some shit yeah like what's that clip like in the very beginning of the movie when they're doing that exercise together not like physical exercise but like they're doing like that like a like a communication drill i don't remember i don't remember either I, I watched this last week and I've already banished it from my mind. Every time I've seen I this fucking, movie, I it's fucking like watched, I fucking watched this earlier tonight and I already fucking forgot. That's how retarded I am. This movie um, like disturbs me so much that I don't like to keep it in my brain. Yeah, exactly. You have to banish it out. But no, it's sort of like, yeah, it is what you're talking about, the monotony of it and the fact that, you know, for better or worse, often for worse, it's like, well, it's like, what is that, like, sort of uh, Chinese cone or whatever? It's like, may you live in interesting times. And it's like, you know, that's a double-edged sword because interesting can be very cool and vibrant and exciting and fun. But also interesting can mean, you know, you're just fucking doing your homework or, you know, waiting at, like, a fucking bus stop and suddenly there is a splash of red in your life. Exactly. And in this movie, it takes so long for them to get to that splash of red that you're like actually like really fully sunken into the private realities of these high schoolers and their drunk fathers and like they're doing their homework together and all of these really static kind of images. And um, even like the shooters, when we see them interacting leading up to the day of the massacre, um, even their dramatic interactions are, like, presented in that, like, bland, you know, rainy day kind of mise-en-scene. It's sort of like there, yeah, there's, like, a, there's, like, drops of the outlandish within the kind of normal and everyday. It's, like, a normal, you know, uh, suburban house in Portland but like they're shooting these guns in the garage or they're watching these Hitler videos or they're, uh, what is it? Like that one part where they like start making out or kissing in the shower is very interesting. Um, But yeah, it's this sense that like within any of the houses that you pass could be this sort of like smoldering cauldron of just insanity absolutely which is the whole threat of oregon in the first place when everybody is put out to the fringe like you never know when you're interacting with somebody if uh, they are going to be the ones that enact your final justice on you and i'm curious to hear what you think about the shooters themselves because i find their relationship to be quite tragic and romantic and uh very puzzling and i myself have never really been able to make out precisely what i think of them 
having their first and last kiss together in that shower. <sighs> well, my my line about school shootings has always been that they are not the result of bullying, but rather that they are the act. They school shootings are acts of bullying, and so they don't strike me as particularly like put upon or begrieved people. They seem somewhat popular within their mi- milieu. Um, but ultimately they're just kind of psychopaths. Yeah. I think that that's quite true. Like, um, when I think about most of the school shooters of like people who killed their own classmates, it's like, none of them are like really like truly like, you know, bullied, like Carrie white figures. Like it's exactly what you said. They're people who are like fine and accepted in their milieu, but then they find an entrance into the fantasy of power where they suddenly realize that they're kind of, you know, Oregonian meaninglessness and listlessness in the world. They realize that there's a way to triumph over that, and it's to fashion the lives of other people into a into an act of terror. And seeing them, like, make out in the shower and, like, touch each other and, like, be gentle with one another, you kind of do realize them as, like, these grandiose, like, Nazi artists who are attempting to break out from the meaninglessness of the whole film of Elephant and the blandness out of all of it and then turn it into something, you know, artworthy and meaningful in the history of the world through uh, their murders. But what Gus Van Sant does so brilliantly here is that he does not allow them to get that triumphant artistic like success like the actual murders are just as bland and disheartening as everything else absolutely it's not like a john wick style thing never um yeah what i and this is a this is something that just came to my mind so i'm going to tease it out is like i think a part of it is that school shooters kind of feel like the lives of teenagers, including their own, are disposable. You know, they're just like these stupid teens. And that because it is this kind of liminal, you know, space or phase in life that they're, that they don't, they have like the kind of like hormonal mania where they're unable to see the fact that it's like, no, this is a process of growing up and becoming an adult and that you are still who you are and you're going to grow up to be, you know, whatever you're going to be. But like when you're in that kind of mindset, especially if you have other, you know, manias going on, you just see being a teenager as just this something that's easily dispensable and that you can just, when you kill a teenager, it's not like you're killing a real person. And so that's why so many of these shootings end in suicide is because, and actually that's one of the things that's interesting about this movie is because it isn't ending a suicide, but in real life, many of these shootings end in suicide because I think at the end of the day, they don't want to die alone. Yeah, absolutely. I, Thinking about, like, um, 
like the death that happens in, in this movie in particular, it's like, it, it relates to me back to Blake Nelson's girl, because it's like when we are watching Andrea Marr, like go about her day to day life and having these kind of failures of interactions with men and her best friends and, you know, doing these things for the first time. Blake Nelson is really right in the way that he kind of characterizes it as like a void and like not an actual sequence of events that are happening. He says that these are kind of these blank space fillers of uh, things that we don't really corporally feel in our life. And so when they're happening over and over again, it amounts to what appears to be nothing until we have the gift of retrospect. And so when these two killers, an elephant, finally decide to do what they're going to do. It it doesn't feel like they're trying to kill people because they have been bullied or because they have some vengeance on the world, but it's because they feel like uh, they're firing upon blank targets, like you just said. And what Van Sant is so incredible for doing is like actually giving such a, a filled-out and lived world to all of these people that he slaughters. Absolutely. It's like, it's them killing these people is as easy as going to that yogurt place or going to taco time or whatever. Yeah. It's exactly that. It's going to scamps. Like, the death (laughs) of these people is like going to the yogurt or like going to like quest every night and like fucking some stupid bitch. It's like, it doesn't mean anything in their eyes. But if they had only had the gift of retrospect and like, being able to truly understand like what user and girl ultimately point out it's that all of these trite and dumb events in your life of endless repetitions actually do pile up into a beautiful flash in reality absolutely and maybe that is where the oregon question like comes in like the rot and death and you know endless stress between neoliberalism and the fake memory of the 90s like in between there there is still nonetheless the flash of being alive it's not a it's not a brush with death it's a brush with life